For much of the 18 months that I have chaired the Cabinet's Parliamentary Business and Legislation Committee, what has surprised me most is the amount of time devoted to parliamentary handling. The idea that the Prime Minister wakes up in the morning and says, I should like a bill, and then Downing Street tells the Commons to get on with it, is simply wrong. There is a careful process discussing how government policy can be implemented with maximum support. By its very nature, this democratic and consensual work is hidden. If the measures under consideration are not judged to be sufficiently supported in Parliament, they will not see the light of day. Although a bill once introduced will not be amended too many times without the blessing of the government, that bill will not be introduced by ministers until the business managers think it will be a passable piece of legislation. The permanent membership of the PBL committee, the Commons and Lords leaders, and the chief whips of both houses act as a safety valve with this regard. They are there to say, members, peers won't wear this if they are sceptical about a policy's popularity in Parliament. The unseen is a protection. The unseen is more democratic than you might think, not less. Well, I think all sensible people have the British Constitution as one of their hobbies. It is the most interesting uh, matter to, to discuss and be informed about. As Dicey said, Dicey argued, it is Parliament that is the defender of the liberties of the people, of our ancient constitution and of our freedoms. I, I give way. Well, once again, welcome to the podcast on how Parliament works. It's a real pleasure to be here today with Lord Young of Cookham, who is a very distinguished former leader of the House and indeed former government chief whip, having been a Secretary of State as well, was in Parliament in the House of Commons for over 40 years before being upgraded to the House of Lords, where he continued to serve the government uh, as a minister, has been an incredibly long-serving statesman. And I hold in particularly high regard because when I first got into the House, Lord Young, Sir George Young as he then was, was the leader of the House, the post that I now hold. And one always remembers the esteemed figures when one first arrives. They have a particular sort of place in the firmament. You always do what your first chief whip thought and said when you get into Parliament and you always respect the first leader of the House. Um, but I wonder if you could tell me about your experience as leader of the House, because George, if I may, um, you were leader for a coalition, which was the first coalition in recent times, and must have been a rather different way of operating. Well, it was, and um, in some ways the coalition was more stable than a one-party government, in that the, the axis on which the coalition was built was the Clegg Cameron axis. And that was actually a much more stable axis than the Brown-Blair axis. Although Brown and Blair came from the same party, they were, as we know, sort of loggerheads for most of the time. And um, David and Nick came from different parties, but actually their age, their outlook on life, their background was very similar. So what we tried to do was to replicate those relationships all the way through the government. And I was very lucky. I had David Heath, who you may remember as a fellow Somerset. My neighboring MP as well, um, yes. He was the deputy leader. And he and I got on 
really well. Um, the only disagreement, I think, was when he wanted to change the letters in the division lobby so there would be a slightly shorter queue for the A to whatever it was and a longer queue for the M to Zs. And, um, I'm afraid on that I had to pull rank. Well, I'm glad you did, because I'm in the same queue. Yeah. Um, so that was a good relationship. And also, it actually gave the government a solid majority of, of, of 80. Although there were, there were rebellions, the two parties never rebelled at quite the same time. Anything to do with Europe, there'd be some wobbles in the Conservative Party, but the Lib Dems would be rock solid. And on welfare reform, where we had to make some difficult decisions, the Liberal Democrats would be wobbly, but the Tories would hold so. Actually, as leader of the House and chief whip, that was quite a solid base. And I shared a lot with David as the deputy. Um, he did some of, the, some of the debates. And there was a useful sounding board for where the other half of the coalition was coming from. So it was unusual. And I think actually the very first debate after the coalition um, came to office was an adjournment debate, which I asked David to do. And with some pride, he announced that he was the first liberal minister for nearly a hundred years that stood at the dispatch box, a moment of great pride. Uh, you'll be able to tell me exactly how many years it was, but it was, I, I can't, unfortunately, but it was 90 um, odd. And we got on really well, and then David was shuffled, and um, Tom Brake, I think, uh, took over. And again, we had a good uh, um, relationship. And that was essential. And I think, you know, throughout the government, that's what they tried to do. So, sort of Vince Cable and, and David Willits, um, we, we tried to, and in many cases, we had worked together in opposition before. So David had been their shadow leader and I had been the shadow leader. So we had used to sort of ganging up against them. Because when, when you came in, the right reforms were just being introduced. And obviously the leader has this careful balancing act between the executive and the legislature to try and support both in different directions. Did the right reforms make your job more complicated in that respect? Um, the right reforms made it slightly more difficult for ministers. I actually sat on the right committee briefly before I was made shadow leader of the house. And as a shadow leader, I committed our party to implementing those bits of the right reforms that Harriet Harman had not delivered on, uh, principally, I think, the backbench business committee. And also we implemented the ones she had agreed to but had never happened before, namely the select committee elections. Um, I think that the, the, there was always some pushback from the government about the right reforms. Um, and I remember some interesting discussions in, in opposition, both with my fellow shadow cabinet members, but also with um, officers of the House about the potential complications if we went down this, this road. Um, and the, the was, uh, the, the worst, there were some difficulties initially in that the um, Backbench Business Committee chose motions which were difficult for the government, and then we had to either whip or not whip. But I think it was the right thing to do, and the, you know, the petitions, and I think electing select committee chairman has given an alternative career structure here. 
it's given the select committees a, a, an authority that they didn't have before. And that's probably made life more difficult for the government, but it's a good thing if the government then has to raise its game, and that's good for the country. Yes, I, I strongly agree with that. I think scrutiny helps the government just as much as it helps Parliament, that it makes people think through more carefully what they're going to do. And if, as inevitably happens, mistakes are made, encourages people to put mistakes right more quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and in the old days, the whips used to select, open inverted commas, safe pairs of hands, close inverted commas, to chair the select committees. Um, not all of them were safe pairs of hands, but um, now the way it works, quite often if there's a contest, the opposition will back the most difficult yes. <laughs> member of the governing party to chair a select committee. Um, whereas previously, someone else would have been shoehorned in. And I think that's good. Uh, it's good for Parliament. Um, and uh, I'm glad you, you share that view. Yes, no, well, it's raised the profile of, of Parliament. Um, and one of the most visible things the Leader of the House does is business questions every week. Was that something you enjoyed doing? Um, if I'm absolutely honest, um, no. no. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure you enjoy it, Jacob, because you're so, so good at it. Um, you, 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 had to, you have to cover, as you know, um, a long range. You have to patrol a very long frontier. And you're never, never quite clear at what point somebody's going to try and break through. So you have to be uh, well briefed. I was very lucky with my PPS, who um, uh, made sure I was well briefed uh, for questions that might possibly come from fellow conservatives, put it, put it mildly. Mm, mm. Um, but because we just set up the Backbench Business Committee, the traditional questions for the leader will you provide time for a debate on the closure of my post office, was now a matter for the backbench business committee. So I found a lot of my questions went actually for me. They were for Natasha Engels. Yes. And I used to invite people to go and attend her salon and make their... Make you did indeed, course. didn't you? You called it her salon, which was a very elegant way of referring to um, it. And I, I was very lucky in that I got on well with my shadow leader. Um, initially, I think Hilary Benn and then Angela Eagle. And, and as you all know, that relationship is crucial. And I was very lucky with, uh, with both. And uh, neither of them were ever personally aggressive or unreasonably hostile. And that, that exchange went quite well. And Hilary and I used to sort of spark off each other every now and then. But I found, you know, a, an hour on my feet uh, answering questions about parts of the world that I had never heard of, let alone visited, uh, ailments which I hope I never got. Um, pretty taxing. <laughs> and um, you know, being forever being courteous. You, you know, just got to be polite to absolutely everybody. And so I, there was always a sort of sigh of relief when the speaker eventually moved on to next business. And I was interested to hear from you, Jacob, that it still lasts about an hour. When I first got in, it did not last an hour. It lasted half an hour at most, and quite often you just did not get in. And at uh, 11 o'clock or 11.15, they would just move on. And uh, it was a relatively new, uh, sort of, I don't know, Michael Martin, John Burko, to allow it to run on until everybody had been called. That's relatively new. It's 
It's quite useful, though, I think, because it's a safety valve for members who haven't been able to get in all week that they can finally get in and tell their constituents, I have raised this issue in, in the House. A nice sort of soundbite for their local newspaper. Yeah. And one recognises that and one tries to help them. And give friendly answers, as I try, to people from all sides of the House, not, not just one's own, own supporters. Yes. Um, but as leader of the House, you're also part of the mysterious usual channels, the unseen wiring of the Houses of Parliament. Um, I wonder how much you feel you can tell us about that, how that worked in your time, what the relationships were like, and perhaps an explanation of how important it is that there are good relationships within Parliament between the different sides to oil the wheels, but also to make sure that the issues that are of greatest importance to people are in fact debated and that those pressures bubble up in a civilised way rather than in an aggressive way. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. What, what the usual channels have got to do is to make sure that there is a framework for which debate, in which debate takes place. And when I first got in, in the 1970s, every now and then that framework got shattered and uh, the usual channels didn't work. And then it was impossible to have a civilized debate in the chamber. Uh, endless points of order, uh, endless uh, suspensions of the house, which hadn't. And so what the usual channels do is agree the timing or the, the parameters of a debate, and then that takes place. And, and again, personal relationships, very important. Um, Within my own party, um, the chief whip when I was leader was Patrick McLaughlin, and the leader when I was chief whip was uh, Andrew Lansley. Um, both very easy to get on with and no trouble at all. And then the other usual channels, the, the clerk, uh, Robert Rogers, now Lord Liz Vane, um, essential. And, and I, I find every now and then that people criticize they say every, every bill is guillotined, and this is monstrous. I don't know what, what happens now, but in my time, the bills were technically programmed, but it was after discussion with the opposition. And so it wasn't the case that the government was using its majority to curtail debate. After discussions, there'd be a program motion, which went through usually without a division. Um, so absolutely right, um, Jacob, that, that in order for the place to work, there has to be a civilized discussion between people of different political views. And it's much better now than it was. Yes, I, I'm very interested in programming and because um, the Conservatives had said that they would get rid of it and then kept it. But I actually share your view and my experience of it that um, sometimes the government is saying, would you like more time? And the opposition says, no, no, that's, that's quite enough. They don't push for, for more. And it seems to me that it's worked quite well, particularly in committee, where the time is used rationally rather than people speaking for hours and hours on the first clause and then guillotines mm. having to come in. And before we had programming, um, you had to do a certain number of days in committee before you could come back to the House and get a programme motion, which meant you spent you know, sometimes two weeks on the sittings motion, which was quite absurd and uh, programming and the, the partnership that you talked about has meant that you do spend the time in committee on the things that really matter. And that's been uh, an enormous uh, step forward. And um, 
It's amazing how much time is wasted deep into the night upstairs in the standing committee debating whether we should sit at 10 o'clock on a Thursday or 10.30 on a Thursday. Total waste of time. And we've moved forward. Yes, now I, I agree with that. And I think one of the things people don't see is that the hidden activities within Parliament, the usual channels particularly, actually benefit democracy rather than being a means of hiding democracy away from people and not letting them see things, that they ensure that the minority has its voice heard, but also ensure the government majority can get its business through. Yes. And when, um, when that doesn't happen, as in the 1970s, um, relationships just break down if, you, if the government doesn't reach out. I remember we, we had, um, when the government won a vote by one in the 1970s, we thought they'd broken a pair. And as a result, we broke off relationships. There was no pairing, nothing. And even the all-party football team, of which I was a member, when we took to the field to play the press gallery, the Tories would only pass to other Tories. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. And um, needless to say, we lost. Uh, yes, I was surprised. And after, after a few days, uh, relationships were restored. But we, we wouldn't pair the ministers. We wouldn't, uh, you know, and, and it became impossible for the House to work because the normal channels, the usual channels, had broken down. Um, and you're right, a lot of the unseen work behind the scenes is ensuring that people get a square deal to avoid it erupting in the chamber, disrupting the business and taking time. One of the other unseen parts of the leader's job, um, seen when it hits Parliament but unseen within government, is legislation and the chairing of the legislation committee. Um, again, you were doing it in the midst of a um, coalition and therefore had to take on board liberal views as well as conservative views. What was your general experience of that and what were the problems that you faced uh, in that committee? And I'm interested in this because it will compare with what I'm doing now and how you try and ensure that the government's legislative programme comes through effectively. PBL is probably the most challenging forum for many ministers when they come before, on their own, um, a group of um, stony-faced business managers wondering how on earth they're going to get this piece of legislation through the House. And that minister has got to be well briefed on the details of his bill. Um, and be able to satisfy the leader and the rest of PBL that he has a, a handling strategy, a strategy for making concessions if they're necessary in the right place, that he's got enough people on side. Uh, to be honest, uh, I couldn't look at a bill and tell you whether it was well drafted or not. Um, I used to go through the bills, just to brief myself, but I wouldn't possibly have known whether it was well drafted, and to that extent one's very much reliant on the Parliamentary Council uh, to get that um, right. But um, both as a leader of the House and then as a chief whip, but also uh, as a minister who's come before PBL with, with legislation, one sees it from all sides. And I found that was a very good test of a minister. And when it came, quite often it would be a minister of state who would bring the bill. And quite often that would influence my decision as a chief whip as to whether in front of me I had cabinet material or whether this was someone who was simply winging it and couldn't actually be relied to get the bill through the house. 
And certainly on one occasion, we, we threw out a bill. I don't know if you've been as merciless as I was once, but we threw out a bill. <laughs> I was interested to see that some six years later, that department persuaded one of my successors to let the bill through. Anyway. Um, yes. But um, basically, it, it, it is a test of the minister, a test of the bill, and also, I suppose, a test of government. Mm. Have they... Have they put too much into the legislative program? Have they allowed enough time for the bill? Have they drafted it, is it drafted in such a way that it's not a Christmas tree that's gonna get stuck in their Lordship's um, house? I was very lucky again with the officials from the cabinet office who briefed me, um, with David Heath who um, worked with me on that, and with the business managers. and. Quite often one would have discrete conversations before PBL actually met to see you know, where trouble might come from. But um, I don't know if you thought of televising PBL. It would make quite compelling television sometimes, but not always to the advantage of um, one's fellow ministers. <laughs> some, you're, you're so right, some appear and are on top of absolutely every detail, know precisely what they're doing, and are really impressive. Um, it's, not always, it's not always the case. And um, I think, as you say, it's, it's, the legislative programme is fundamental to what a government achieves, to uh, its re-electability, to its legacy. And therefore, the filter of PBL is, is crucial. And now you're in the Lords, you see PBL spends a lot of time on handling in the Lords, probably more time on handling in the Lords than in the Commons, because mm. the government has a majority, it's got a, a pretty effective whip. But the Lords is um, more freewheeling in a way. And I expect when you were doing PBL, the same was, the same was true. And you were thinking about which peers might be able to cause mm. trouble for a bill and how you would deal with that. I've, um, I've taken bills through the Lords. And uh, now I'm a backbencher. I'm proposing amendments to bills in the Lords. So I, I've seen in the Lords, um, you have to win the argument. Basically, was here, you like to win the argument, but even if you don't win the argument, you've got the majority. Down in the Lords, um, you've really got to win the argument. And the terms of trade in the Lords are quite different. When I was a minister in the Commons, say housing minister, I would reckon to know more about my subject than any backbencher asking me a question. When I was a whip in the House of Lords answering questions from four di different departments, it was exactly the opposite. Anybody asking me a question knew more about it than I did because we have a lot of experts in the House of Lords and they tend to pitch in on their subjects. So terms of trade, totally, totally different. Um, but the, the, I mean, we've, got, we've got a bill going through at the moment, um, which I spoke on yesterday, the domestic abuse bill. Mm. We've spent six whole days in committee. I don't know how many days we're gonna spend in report. And that bill is gonna come back to your house, leader, in a slightly different form to which it left your house, because we have spent an enormous amount of time. And we've got, we got, we got lots of experts, people who've been active in the women's aid movement, people from the, uh, from the judiciary, housing experts. Um, and we really, we really have spent a lot of time, and Susan Williams has done a heroic job fielding that with David Wilson and, and, and others. So um, 
the, the, it, is, it is a different sort of game down there um, because of the, 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 the time and the expertise. And that's probably the House of Lords at its best, the detailed scrutiny of a bill where there is genuine expert knowledge and recognising, the, accepting the broad thrust of government policy, but improving yeah. the detail. Yes, and we are infinitely more polite. Um, you know, we don't have to get re-elected. Um, there's, there's much less sort of party political banter. In fact, they don't, their lordships don't really like partisan comments. And they view with great suspicion anybody who's come from the Commons, lest they infect the House with this unseemly exchange on a party political basis. But I can't think they were ever suspicious of you. I mean, they must have felt that you were a natural um, entrant to... Uh, I, I think I, I probably persuaded them <laughs> I was You're suitable material uh, more quickly than, say, Lord Tebbit did. <laughs> Who is certainly party political. Indeed, indeed, and still, st still is, bless him. A great man. Um, so one of the things that there's been a paper on recently is on um, the government's control of the order paper in the House of Commons. Obviously, as leader, one is, well, I maintain I'm the spokesman for the chief whip when it comes to the order paper, that I don't really decide, but I explain what the, what the chief has decided. Um, I never thought the idea of a House Business Committee was a good idea, even when I was newly elected, not always supporting the government backbench MP. And certainly as the Leader of the House, I think that handing over control of the order paper would actually undermine the democratic mandate that the government has. But I'd be very interested in your thoughts on, on the management of business and control of the order paper and how that fits in with the separation between the legislature and the executive? I think giving the backbench committee, is it 22 days per session, roughly, um, is a happy compromise between the total monopoly the government used to have and what might happen if you had a house business committee on the other hand. And um, uh, although we made a commitment, I think, in the 2010 coalition agreement to introduce a House Business Committee after X years. It, it never really happened. I think uh, we asked the Procedure Committee to have a look at it and then there wasn't really agreement on the form. And I think I'd left the job by the time Andrew Lansley decided actually it wasn't going to happen. And the experience of those countries where they have had a, as it were, a House Business Committee isn't, isn't wholly encouraging in that the government tends to find ways round and through. And I, I suspect what we've got now is a, is, a happy, is a happy compromise with one day a week, a Thursday. But the rest of the business being, being settled after discussion through the usual channels, so the government doesn't um, use its majority to force something on the House. And in, in the old days, when I first got in, business questions was about the business of the House. It was about whether the government had allowed, was debating the right subject next Tuesday or Wednesday, whether it allowed enough time. Um, by the time I became leader of the House, the business of the House wasn't very often, quite often you had to disguise your question, will you find time for a debate on, but actually it was nothing to do with the business of the House. And that I think is partly a result of the success of what you referred to earlier, of the usual channels coming to agreement on what is the right time or 
time or timing for that particular uh, debate. Um, and then letting the bench business really have an element of choice. And when I was leader, some of the best debates were actually on debates chosen by the backbench business committee um, on the disaster from the Sheffield Stadium, the aftermath of that, and some of the awkward issues that neither the government nor the opposition really wanted to talk about. <laughs> they were chosen by, by the backbench business committee, and quite often they generated good debates. So it may be that where we've ended up wasn't quite where the coalition government thought we would be or where Dr. Wright thought we would be, but perhaps it's a something we can both live with, and quite often that's how the House works. Neither side gets absolutely everything it wants, but you end up with a sustainable compromise. I think that's right, and certainly in terms of business questions, very few of my questions are about, will you be allocating more time for this particular piece of legislation? And we've had a bit of that relating to proceedings around the pandemic, inevitably. But if you put that to one side, I'm very rarely asked, can we have a second day in, um, on report stage on the floor of the House or yeah. anything of that nature? Um, well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely enlightening talking to you and for, for sparing your time. Um, I wonder one last question. Which of your various posts, Leader of the House, Chief Whip, Secretary of State for Transport, did you find the most interesting and, and rewarding? Was it the administration or the actual uh, deciding? Oddly enough, none of the ones that you have just mentioned. Um, being Minister of Housing, I was a junior housing minister for about six years in the 1980s, and then I was Minister for Housing and Construction for about four years in the 1990s. And um, Somewhat unusually, I was longer in my post than a lot of the civil servants. Right. Whereas normally it's the other way around. Yes, yes. <laughs> but George Young would be there and the civil servants would come and leave. And by, by the end, uh, I, I, I felt I knew the key players in the housing association movement, in local government, in the construction industry, uh, because I'd been chairman of a housing association and had a constituency which had lots of housing problems I felt and I really enjoyed my time as Minister of Housing under John Major and to a slightly lesser extent under Margaret um, Thatcher um, and that you, you, you pulled a lever it was connected to the machine and things happened uh, we got the number of rough sleepers in London down by about two-thirds we changed how the housing housing was funded to get more funds in from the private sector we enfranchised tenants and I think that was, although I was never Secretary of State in that department, that was where I found the most sort of fulfillment in my, in my career. Um, and that uh, surpassed even the enjoyment of being leader of the House and the sometimes difficult time of being government chief whip. Well, thank you very much. It shows the advantage of people actually having time in the job and the ability to build up experience which often has a reward in itself. But thank you for sparing your time this afternoon. It's extremely good of you. Well, Jacob, it's been a pleasure to come back to this, uh, this room and uh, also learn from you. Oh, well, that's very flattering. Thank you so much. <laughs>